Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guests, because we have two guests, are two Robs. First up is Rob Hopkins, who's the co-founder of Transition Town Totnes and Transition Network. He's the author of several books, but most recently he's written From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. In 2012, he was voted one of Independent's top 100 environmentalists and was on Nesta and the Observer's List of Britain's 50 New Radicals, which I love anyone who's considered a radical. And our second Rob is Rob Shorter, who's the community's lead for Donut Economics Action Lab, or DEAL. He works with community-based organizations that are drawing on the core concepts of donut economics to respond to ecological emergency and social inequality. His most recent work has been exploring the role of imagination in steering humanity towards a world in which people and planet thrive in balance. And he is the creator or co-creator of the Imagination Sundial with our first Rob. So we've gotten the introductions out of the way, and I want to welcome both of you to the deep dive. Thank you. Hey, Phil. Thank you for having us. All right. So I want to get started with really talking a little bit about the book. So I'm going to use the book to basically frame some of the concepts and then we're going to roll in to the imagination sundial because, you know, both of them really deserve their own conversation, their own richness. But I think people understanding the context of, of both of your work and how you, you came to some of these ideas and where there was inspiration from one place to another will be really helpful in setting the stage for the sundial. So what I really want to start with is this idea of imagination, which I think in what I'll call general circles, imagination is often thought of as this exercise that is rather frivolous. It's thought of as something for, you know, for kids, but only kids of a certain age, and then you kind of grow out of it. And I'm, I'm editorializing a bit, but, you know, you've really decided to focus um, your work on imagination and, and in a way, rebranding it or rethinking about it. So I think that's a good place for us to start with why imagination is so essential to how you're thinking about a variety of issues. So is that that's for me? Yeah. Yes. First, first, Rob, go for it. Okay. So about two years ago, I, I found that I kept reading stuff by people who I really admire, thinkers on climate change, like Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and people who kept saying climate change is a failure of the imagination. I kept seeing this phrase popping up in different places. And it really kind of got under my skin. I thought, well, why would it be that in 2019, 2020, we're experiencing a failure of the imagination at the time when, when we're faced with this massive existential crisis of the climate and ecological emergency, which demands us to reimagine and rebuild everything, right? Because it's not like it's something where we can just keep business as usual going and stick some solar panels on the roof and just switch to organic carrots and it's all going to be all right. We've left it far too late for that. We have to rethink economic systems. We have to rethink our justice systems, our everything, building, food, everything. And so it struck me that actually if our imagination is not up to it, if we've somehow created this perfect storm or, or what Henry Giroux calls the disimagination machine. If we've created these conditions that are causing our imagination to shrink, and if actually that process has been going on for 20 or 30 years, unnoticed by anybody, and now when it comes to the time when we have to reimagine and rebuild everything, and our imagination muscle, which should be taught like sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, is actually sort of floppy and flaccid, then we're really in trouble. And so researching a book, I set out to explore are we living in a time of imaginative poverty? If so, why is that? And what would it look like if we set out to try and kind of rebuild our collective imaginative capacity? Because it's something that feels to me like we, we, we understand that in a population, if, if we don't have a good enough diet, we see a rise in preventable illnesses. If we don't have a good education system, we see lots of people unable to reach their full potential. But just slightly out of view, slightly over here, is this kind of demise of the imagination going on kind of unnoticed. Because as you say, people think of imagination as something kids do, something a bit silly, it's a bit frivolous. As one woman, Gabriella Gomez-Mont, who I interviewed for the book, she said, imagination is not a luxury. 
Imagination is a fundamental manifestation of, our, of us being healthy, actually. It's something which is vital to our well-being, and uh, we have kind of eradicated it out of our public and personal lives at great cost, I think. And rather than saying, okay, we need to be creating a, a, a low-carbon world, and we need to be doing that, we absolutely also, in parallel to that, need to give people boosts that capacity for us to really imagine what that would be like, to really help people create a profound longing for what that future would be like. I think so much of my work in transition and with this book is about longing. And, and as Rob will talk about with Donut Economics, is really about how do we bring alive a future that we can then create that longing for, create those memories of the future about, and create new North Stars in our life. And that's really where I was, uh, the, the kind of opening question with the book. And you made a, a quote in there that is very interesting, this idea that imagination is, is not a luxury. But for many people that are, you know, living in, in a precarious state. You know, I, I interviewed um, Indy Johar a while ago and that term came up a lot. So it's been stuck in my head. And so I want to credit him for kind of placing it there. But, you know, for, for some of us, it is a luxury, right? Like yeah. if, if you're dealing with issues of survival and not just in a, in a physical sense, but in a psychological sense, in a financial sense, you know, you're living in this, in, again, this kind of precarious state where you're always on the razor's edge. It's very hard to imagine something different, right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So how, yeah. do, how do we push past that concept or, or this reality that has made us imagination scarce, so to speak? Yeah, I think we have to recognize that imagination to a degree is a, is a function of privilege and that if your basic needs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs for food and shelter and security aren't met, it's much, much harder. And there's, of course, a sort of a, a social justice and issues of systemic racism. There's a beautiful quote by Adrienne Marie Brown about how, how for many people of color often find themselves living in someone else's imagination, an, an imagination that doesn't really include space for them. And, and so there is a, there's a massive question around around that for me and about around social justice and wh when governments impose austerity which impacts the poorest people in any community it's an assault on the imagination i think you close the libraries you close the various things that that a culture needs in order to have an imaginative life and you see those as being somehow disposable uh, you know we in the uk we have a system where if you go to private school to a sort of um to that kind of school, they have amazing art rooms and great drama and creative writing and all of that is seen as fundamental to producing people who are rounded people. If you go to the state-funded schools, that stuff is being purged out hugely. So I think we have to recognize that, that imagination is under assault from many, many angles. And I mentioned Henry Giroux, who talked about, yeah, he talked about the Trump disimagination machine. When you have a government who kind of gaslight your history and tell you that, you know, it actually wasn't like that and so on and so on. You know, we're seeing, I think it's this sort of perfect storm of things that are undermining the imagination, which is why in the book I talk about how we have to look at rebuilding the collective imagination alongside um, making society more equal and more rights and, you know, social justice and all of these things all kind of tie in together, I think, absolutely. And Rob Shorter, our second Rob, I want to give you a, a chance to kind of weigh in as well, because obviously your work also encompasses this idea of reimagining economic systems. So even before the work on the sundial, you've also been wrestling with a lot of these issues. Right. Yeah. So in the, the work I do at the moment with donut economics, it's really a question of how do we, we wholesale reimagine what the economy is for, right? So we've got an economy based on this kind of implicit but not explicitly stated goal of growth, and it's leading us into all kinds of crises. And, and so that what the donut offers is, is a, an alternative uh, in which we put the needs of all people around the world uh, and within the needs of the living planet first. And so what actually uh, brought me to imagination was saying, well, if we're to go to this new, if we're to change direction towards this new, this new purpose of economics, how do we imagine what that's like? And, you know, what are the tools that we can, we can equip people with to build that muscle of imagination that Rob mentioned to be able to tackle the biggest questions of time at the moment. So I was really completely inspired by Rob's work and his storytelling and bringing these inspiring stories of people cultivating the imagination, using their imagination in all different type, kind of places and contexts. And then I thought there's, there's such magic, there's such wisdom, and, and there's real insight in that, in these stories. And so that then kind of led me on this, this quest to kind of work out, well, what are the themes that are running in amongst these 
incredible stories, these incredible people doing things that you, you hear these stories and you think, wow, I could actually see myself doing that as well. And it, it gives you a real agency of get up and go and a sense of possibility. So I heard these stories and I, and I thought, how can we combine the biggest kind of goal of like realigning what all of you know, the economy is for you know, with, this, with the, the, the magic of these, these stories and the imagination that's coming through in them? And I want to pick up on that thread a little bit more, because when you talk about these economies, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're living in a, most of us are living in a, a Western capital, capitalist society. And so that's a, a system. But then we also have like an industrial age ownership type of story, right? So if I think about that imagination thread, which a little bit of like visualization, right? If you think about athletes visualizing themselves doing something, then they can do the thing. Right. You know, for even those who are in those undersourced or underrepresented communities, their imagination is still bound oftentimes within capitalist models. Right. So they're they're kind of reinforcing a particular story. I, I say that. I mean, I grew up on hip hop. I love music and hip hop in many ways is aspirational music, but it's also, you know, neoliberal music. Right. It's very focused on wealth individual, a lot of things like that. So, I, in, which I don't think is on purpose. I think some of the operating system is just, yeah, you live in America in a way it's better to have than to not have. And if you come from not having, it's obviously you're going to want to have more because that's, again, your survival kicking in. So I want to kind of drill down on how the economics and the overriding story can somehow maybe steer your imagination in a particular way if you're not given alternatives to see something different. Shall I start with that one? Yeah, go for it. I was going to say, I grew up on hip-hop too, and maybe we listened to different hip-hop. I, I found for me that actually hip-hop was a huge kind of political education, and, uh, and I learned so much about history and, uh, and culture through listening to hip-hop. Maybe we're slightly different yeah, generations. Know, <laughs> no, I don't think we are. Um, you know, not but, dating myself, but when I say I grew up on it, I mean I grew up on it. I'm a 70s, 80s kid. Right. Yeah, and yeah. So I'll use an example of one of my favorite rappers. You know, Jay-Z is, is my favorite rapper. I think he's the best rapper ever. Right. If I'm listing my top three, he's number one. <laughs> right. <laughs> but for all of my love of Jay-Z, when he says things like, you know, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. That's a element of buying into the system that doesn't have community at its at its core. Right. So sure. they, they talk a lot about you know, what's better than one black billionaire, two black billionaires, right? And I'm like, well, we don't need billionaires, <laughs> right? As, as an example. And I love Jay, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying that the music has morphed in a way where, again, there's that American dream. And I'm talking about where I'm from, right? It's different. But I think Western societies have some of that where, like I said, if in a country where healthcare is scarce, it's better to have the job that gives you healthcare than to not have the job that where healthcare now is, you're fighting for it, right? So yeah. people can't imagine, rather than imagining the universal aspect, they're just like, fuck it, let me hustle and get the job. It gives me the healthcare, right? And screw everybody else. So that's where I'm trying to like yeah. parse that, that through line a little bit, even though, yeah, public enemy taught guess, me everything. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to say, that I grew up listening to public enemy. And actually for me, in terms of imagination, you know, I see some of the greatest work of imagination actually coming from kind of militant, radical black culture, like, you know, things like the prison abolition movement. The fact there's been a movement that has for decades has kept alive that question of what if there were no prisons? And the, the, this massive question now, what if there were no police? What if actually we defunded the police? What if we invested money that we put into criminal justice into communities of color to do in different ways? Those are massive, massive imagination questions. And I always am so curious, actually, as to how how people... There's so much that everybody else can learn from how a culture keeps those kind of questions alive for that long. And, you know, hip hop is one of the ways of doing that. You know, so so, so for me, I, I think like, you know, in all cultures, there are what if questions that, that people are keeping alive. And often it's young people and Black Lives Matter movement and the, the, the youth strikes for climate have been phenomenal at putting those what if questions mm. back on the table. And we keep sort of brushing them aside with a kind of, with a sort of a grown up kind of, well, that'll never happen kind of, you know, in the real world, stop being so naive. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, what if we allowed ourselves 
to imagine an economy where you didn't need healthcare. Actually, we're going to have to keep that question on the table. Yes, of course, in the day-to-day reality of our lives, we have to make sure that if our kids get sick, we're not going to be in debt for the next for the rest of our lives to pay for them because they broke their arm or something ridiculous. But at the same time, we need to be really passionately holding on to that what-if question of what if that wasn't the case? And actually, how do we move? I recently started doing a podcast called From What If to What Next, which then takes those what-if questions and finds the best people to say, how might we move that from being a what-if question to being a what next, to actually being a reality? And so that feels to me like the piece that we often... You know, since Martin Luther King, since Bobby Kennedy, uh, you know, we have very few I have a dream politicians who try and bring to life what it could actually be like. There are a couple of them around now, but there's not very many. And uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book is a guy called Stuart Candy, who's a futurist, who had this brilliant idea. He said, every time there's an election, we should get the people who are running for office to make a three minute video taking us around the world as it will be in 10 years if we implement their policies. Like, let us inside your head. We want to know what's the vision inside your head of what the world's going to be like that underpins what you're doing. For me, one of the most beautiful things about donut economics and one of the insights that I had when when I was researching the book is the imagination thrives most when it has limits, when you put limits around it. If I just said, Phil, tell me a story, you might be a bit like, oh, I don't know. If I said, tell me a story about a mouse with a blue hat who lives under the piano in the house around the corner from you. I put some limits around it and you're kind of off. It's like you do the same in improv. What donut economics does so beautifully is it defines the space. It defines the sweet spot we need to work within. But it doesn't say, it doesn't give you all the answers. It just defines the space within which we have to be really, really imaginative. And I think that is relevant for everybody in every position where they are. We have to always keep that bit of our mind alive that's going, what if, what next? How do we do that? Because once we give up on that, then neoliberal, extractive, socially racist culture has has completely defeated us and killed our imaginations off for good. And we can't see that happen. And Rob, I wanted to give you a, a chance because I, what Rob asks, I want to give you a chance because I see nodding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm loving what you're saying. And also, yeah, so many things are coming to mind as well. And there's actually, I just want to start with a quote from Rob's book from Richard Sennett, which says that you know, modern capitalism works by colonizing people's imagination of what's possible. And that kind of goes to what you were talking about before. And and it's this, this sense that, um, and also Frederick James, uh, Jameson is another great quote, which says, it's easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. And so it's the sense that sometimes we don't recognize the constraints of our imagination. Like we we don't recognize like the size of the box in which we're operating from. And actually, if you ask a what if question, my um, what I like to do is then ask a bigger what if question and a, then a bigger what if question, you start getting like more fundamental. And sometimes if someone asks you a what if question and then you go one bigger on them and you see them go, oh, whoa, I didn't even consider that. <laughs> and it's, it's quite a fun game just to kind of like go deeper and wider and broader and longer with your what ifs. And I think some of those great what if questions like what if there were no prisons you know that, that's you know taking things to the next level and i think that's what we need right now yeah I, just, I to add, just to add one little tiny little thing to that actually if i might which is that i i think i feel like margaret thatcher in the 80s said there is no alternative and i feel like those words logged themselves into the collective psyche somehow that we've convinced ourselves that there's no alternative and one of the things just with what rob was saying there about what if questions one of the things i was trying to teach people on courses is something i learned doing learning improv theater which is the difference between yes but and yes and you know we live in a yes but culture every time we say hey how about we don't have any prisons someone goes yes but well that would never work because da, 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 da. and actually to create a culture within our movements where when someone makes a really great what if question we go yes and and then we build off that is completely liberating in terms of how it shifts our thinking and our and what we make space for in terms of possibilities and the, and the oh sorry wait, I no, say you, the what you go you go no no the what if notion is is really important and it's it's among the notes i'm glad we kind of came to it organically, just in in the way we're kind of breaking down the conversation. And, you know, you both mentioned the idea of boundaries and and limits and how they can, you know, help us, you know, the restraining in a way can help us think of more possibilities. And I wrote down and and started thinking about the, the analog and digital ways in which that happens, right? That in a lot of digital spaces where you know, gaming and playing, and and that's so much a part of our digital experience, there's this idea that the game goes on forever, you know, particularly when we're in, you know, kind of alternative or virtual worlds, that we're building something that can go on forever, and people feel like that is very imagination-releasing, whereas the game, once you enter into it, there's already prescribed rules, norms, and ways in which it, it happens. So the digital doesn't feel as imaginative as maybe the analog game 
might be, you know, the old games we played growing up on the streets, running around our respective neighborhoods and playing with our mates and all the rest of it. So I'm curious how you guys think through this this notion of the analog, the digital, as it pertains to boundaries and limits. Understanding that it doesn't mean one's better than the other, but where you see those things sort of intersecting, so to speak. One thing certainly to do with the the analog, I feel that it engages the senses in a way that the digital might not. There's something really powerful about being in a space that engages your, you know, your your sense of, of you know touch and 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 sight and smell and being with something physical that kind of can really do something for the imagination. But in terms of like the games that you mentioned online that have this this endless sense to them, um, I don't know. That's I guess it's not um, the idea of limits is kind of limits where there I guess there are helpful limits and then there's maybe some limits that that actually aren't. Yeah, by having by opening uh, this limitless space, it can actually be, be good for the imagination. So I don't think it's necessarily like a wholesale, wholesale like every type of limit is good for the imagination. Yeah, I, I, I feel like it's not, you know, to say it's either or. It's not like we should, everything should be analog or everything, you know, it's, it's a, there's going to be a mix of the two. But I, I feel like one of the bits that was most interesting for me researching in the book was the chapter about play and that kind of free, unstructured uh, play that our streets used to be full of and I quote some research that was done in published in about 2010 that looked at this creativity test that's been done on big sets of people going back to the 1960s which said that imagination and IQ rose together till the mid 90s and then IQ kept rising and imagination started to decline and she linked that one of the things she linked that to was the decline of play uh, in society and uh, the, another one was the rise of screens the kind of prevalence of screens in our lives the beautiful thing about street play is you start with an agreed let's pretend, which maybe you also start with in a, in a computer game, I reckon. But the beauty of street play is halfway through you can go, yeah, let's do something else. Let's completely remake the rules up. That kind of play is how we learn to cooperate and manage conflict and, uh, and kind of come up with different things that weren't there at the beginning. And, and also, I, th I think we have to be very mindful of the increasing number of games that we play, particularly online games, which are designed to commandeer and kind of colonize our imagination and our attention in particular, and uh, have all this kind of dopamine triggering stuff designed into them and that we can't put them down. And you hear those horror stories of kids in Japan and Korea playing games in nappies because they can't leave their computer for 40 hours and kids dropping dead of exhaustion because they've been playing these games. And there's not many kids who've had that experience with playing Monopoly or uh, or playing games, kind of street games. You know, it doesn't really happen. So I came really to feel that there is a really powerful link between imagination and our attention span, our ability to sustain our attention. And, and when our attention spans are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, we're much more easily co-opted. We're much more easily fooled, I think. Uh, and I think the rise of kind of online conspiracy stuff uh, and the decline of our attention span, there's a real link there and how those are pushing fantasy really rather than imagination, I think. So I think we need both. But one of my favorite things in the book was an example of a, some activists in London who were so concerned about debt in the neighborhood, they took over an old bank and turned it into this place where they printed these banknotes to raise money for community projects and for paying off debt. But they were rather than it being an online virtual thing, they were printing actual tangible pieces of paper using screen printing and blocks. And people were coming in and smelling the ink and saying, oh, this is what my dad used to smell like when he came home from work. And, and one of the people who ran that project said, people seemed starved of making. And I feel like in the same way, people seemed starved of play in a way that they can just make it up as they go along. And I think we must really not lose sight of that. Yeah, the um, the touch and the feel. When you talked about printing, I remember being in school, we used to have those old mimeograph machines. I don't know if they're called the same everywhere, but it was like this big blue thing and you would crank it and get like copies because we didn't have copier machines back in the day, 70s in Brooklyn and at grade school. That was that was a luxury that the schools could not afford. But if you can run the mimeograph machine, that was a big, big thing for you because it kind of made you high. Um, so <laughs> smell is a, smell is a very important thing. Um, Absolutely. I, I want to get to this idea of, you know, imagination as a public choice, you know, a way of instituting it within policy and norms across a wide swath of our society, that it doesn't just exist within kindergarten and daycare and, you know, these academic environments or corporate retreats or however, all the different places where I think people have said imagination is allowed, right? It's brainstorming or whatever words we use. Like, how do we, you know, how do we institute this more into just our normal way of living and being so we can get to these viable futures? Rob? 
Uh, you can, if you've got something. Either, either Rob can go. <laughs> All right. Okay. I think sometimes I meet people who say, well, you know, you don't want everyone to be imaginative. You know, imagine if you had a, uh, an imaginative brain surgeon, you don't want an imaginative brain surgeon. And I thought, well, actually, I kind of would. And not one that's so imaginative. I wake up and find, you know, he's sort of, I don't know, give, swap my arms and legs over or something. You know, but actually you want somebody who's able to solve problems and be creative. And I think that, that runs across the board, really. The question that I came to in the book is, well, what would it look like if you set out to intentionally increase the society's ability to be imaginative? How would you do that? Where would you start? And I think, you know, there's obviously we have to look at education. Education needs to be very, very different. Education that actually prepares people for the 21st century, prepares people for the climate and ecological emergency looks very different from what education looks like today. Education that produces young people who are able to go out and play a role in the decolonization and, and, and so on in society gives young people the role to be able to be involved in making decisions and bring democracy into whatever they're part of. Why isn't that part the fundamentally part of school? You know, we seem to have a, at the moment in the UK, our education system is looking at China and going, hey, they're getting great numeracy and literacy stats. How do we do that? And in China, they're going, hey, wow, they're really imaginative over there. How do we do that? And uh, so to have an education system that prioritizes those things would be very, very different. I was really interested in looking to see if I could find places where politicians were saying, no, imagination is really important. So one, a couple of places that I found doing the research for the book, one was in Mexico City, where the mayor of Mexico City created within his administration what was in effect a ministry of imagination whose role was to look after and create the best conditions for the imagination of the city uh, to really flourish. And it's a beautiful uh, example. But the best one was from Bologna in Italy, which I heard uh, I only heard about two weeks before the deadline for the manuscript. So I was desperately trying to find people who could tell me about it, which was what they, they created, what they called a civic imagination office in Bologna, which ran all kinds of visioning stuff and open space and uh, future work with, with in neighborhoods all across the city. And then we'll, we'll come on to talk about the sundial in a minute. But one of the things that they created out of that was this idea of pacts, which was, OK, we're going to meet you in the middle. Uh, that's a great idea. How do we make it happen? Because also, all too often our, our experience in society is where even when we're invited to be imaginative, the stuff we come up with is, is marginalized and disrespected and ignored. And we go along, and we write our great ideas on post-it notes, and then we go home and they chuck them all in the bin and do what they were going to do anyway. To have that thing where, where people are meeting imagination in the middle and they're saying this is central to us uh, reinvigorating democracy in this city and reinvigorating participation. And it was so interesting to me, they could have called it the Civic Participation Office or the Civic Engagement Office, but they didn't. They called it a Civic Imagination Office because they said once we got people together and facilitated it properly, imagine was the word we heard most in the room. People were saying, oh, imagine if, imagine if, and so they kind of hit gold there, it felt like. And there are many other examples. That intentional bringing imagination into the heart of how democracy happens, whether at a national scale or at a local scale. And I think that's a great segue to start to, to really drill down into the sundial itself, the, the imagination sundial. So you, you alluded to it, Rob S., a little bit about like what inspired you, obviously the book and Rob H.'s work, but give us a little bit more of not so much the form and function, but it is visually striking. We're going to have pictures of it when I post the episode and all that kind of stuff. And you have it available for folks to download a high-res PDF of the Imagination Sundial, which I encourage everybody to do. There'll be links in, in the show notes to be able to do that. But, you know, it really struck me because it did a number of things that I think is very interesting. One, it kind of reappropriated an idea of a sundial, which is something that you don't see much anymore, right? It's, it's kind of a relic of a time before us, right? But I think everyone, even if they're not that familiar with the mechanics of a sundial, they know immediately what it is. You know, it, it also has these pinwheel types of motion. It's a very visually striking way in which it was laid out. So I want to give you a, an opportunity to kind of walk, you know, me and the listeners through the inspiration and, and just how you landed on that as, a, as a, even a design inspiration to take this idea further. And then we'll get into the elements of it. Yeah, of course. So I think the first thing to lay out is this is there is no way to possibly capture all of the wonderful, incredible, unknowable things that relate to the imagination. So this is like a bit of a design guide, a gesturing towards what might be helpful for people who are looking to intentionally design to bring about spaces and places and people together, um, bring about collective imagination. And and yeah, so the, the design was really intentionally to be beautiful and to capture people. And looking at it, it's kind of based on four kind of quadrants of a circle. 
would summarize the kind of the four main elements, which is space, place, practices, and pacts. And if I just quickly give a summary of what those are. So space is that mental and emotional space that expands our capacity to imagine. We touched on that really in terms of the imagination being a function of privilege. And privilege brings space in people's lives, a sense of either emotional, physical um, safety and various other elements within that. Places is a gathering places that provide platforms for collective imagining. And if you were to think of the, the places where we can gather, they're sort of being squeezed out of our lives, places where we can gather without having to pay you know, three pounds for a flat white or something like that, you know, um, places the sort of really welcoming communal places. Then um, practices is the practice that connect us and change our frame of possibility and uh, how we're inspired by others, how we use our hands, how we make things, how we play, how we celebrate together. And the last, which, which Rob has already mentioned, is pacts. So pacts of collaboration that catalyze imagination to action. It's not just about imagining for imagination's sake. It's like, well, how do we then translate this into action? And, and one of the most powerful inspirations for uh, imagination is action. So action inspires imagination, which inspires further action. So it's, it's kind of this wonderful virtuous circle of, of imagining and action. So this interestingly started from a conversation that Rob and I were having. So when I was, I was studying for a dissertation in economics for transition at Schumacher College in Devon in the UK, I was, uh, I was staying with, with Rob and we were sitting in his front room talking about all these wonderful stories and some of the threads that, that bind them. And then Rob said, well, what kind of all of these conversations have is that imagination needs space and it needs spaces. And that was the very first moment that this kind of this idea of the imagination framework came together. And so what we see now is the kind of uh, further fleshing out of those ideas and bringing in all the elements that I saw. And kind of, again, that element, and there's also a notion of serendipity in there, right? That as both of you were talking and sharing these stories, there's inspiration that comes through that sharing, right? It's, it's almost as if there was a informal pack forming between the two of you to then inspire this type of work? Like, would you, because it didn't sound like you went into it thinking that this was going to be the end result, right? Or maybe the start of a new beginning. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, it was it was something where the, the book had just been finished and the book had just been sent off to be published. And then Rob came down. I've got this, we'd had a few kind of, conversations because Rob read the was one of the first people to read the manuscript for the book he came to a session I taught at Schumacher College and uh, and then he came down with this thing sort of drawn on a piece of paper I was like oh that's brilliant that <laughs> by which time it was too late to put it in the book so it's kind of one of those things and it's one of like, like most of the best ideas they come out of a conversation and two people going oh and looks like that's really and then you know you mentioned you mentioned how beautiful it is that is entirely down to Rob's ability to do beautiful things with a laptop that I can barely even dream of. And uh, he made it into something which is just absolutely dazzlingly beautiful, I think. And uh, we called it a sundial. We kind of an exchange. I can't remember which of us it was who came up with it, but we were like, what is it? Is it a mandala? No, that sounds a bit kind of hippie. Is it a, is it a this? Is it a that? Is it a, maybe it's a sundial. Oh yeah, I like that. It's a sundial. So it wasn't conceived of as a sundial. It emerged as what it emerged as. Uh, and Rob sort of distilled so many brilliant kind of, I guess it's something where, like, you know, when you create something, it's like it often takes somebody else to come along with fresh eyes and look at it and go, and then to pull out things in it that you hadn't actually seen in it yourself. And Rob did that beautifully. And I think the sundial is a really beautiful manifestation of that. Just, just to add a little bit to Rob's um, the, the story of its name and how it came about, it was batting a few ideas around. And yeah, the word mandala came up maybe the word wheel and things like that. But what I recognized in this whole process of looking into the, the conditions of collective imagination, one of the things Rob touched on was that some individuals are imaginative and others aren't. And what I recognize is actually it's when we come together and we inspire each other, that's when imagination really accelerates. And yes, it was through our, our talking and, and inspiring each other that this came about. But I kind of took that idea into the naming of it as well. And I, I didn't really want to impose the name on it myself and didn't have a name on it initially. And Rob was doing a talk and I was watching the comments come through. It was a talk in lockdown. So we were doing it over Zoom. And someone said, oh, that imagination sundial thing. And it just, <laughs> what, what's that? Can I see that again? And it was the first time I, I heard someone refer to it as a sundial. And then I thought, yeah, that could work. And it was sort of sourced from the crowd. It was sourced because... Yeah, someone else was seeing it with fresh eyes, a perspective that neither Rob nor I had seen. And I feel it's so important that we welcome a diverse view. Sorry, this is, I'm going off the tangent now, but if the imagination welcomes diversity, 
and welcomes like diverse perspectives and diverse ways of looking at things. And when all of those are welcomed equally, I think there's no limit to what we can do. And so I think, yeah, the na- it's lovely that the name came from somewhere else, someone else. And I can't even remember who it was, but massive kudos to, to who that was. <laughs> we might have to do another call with a third person who, <laughs> who kind of comes in and, and, and wants like some, some naming, uh, additional naming accolades or, yeah, or at least fair enough. That, putting that inspiration out there. But I, I mean, I think that is how ideas and, and things start to ferment, right? These, these little elements that you pick up along the way and then they breathe life into new things. And it, it sounds like, you know, like I said, when I, when I came across it, I was instantly like drawn to the notion and the ideas behind it. And, you know, we are still in different stages of COVID and pandemic. You mentioned having a Zoom conversation where some of this started to ferment and come to fruition. So, you know, before we get to the, the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and then The Drop, what I really want to start to think about is, you know, this this what if notion, right? As we look out onto the future and we're kind of thinking about like what's next, like what do you both see as coming next given this particular moment in time, right? This you guys in a different place in a pandemic than we are. Maybe we're both in just slightly less terrible places, depending on, on where you are. But I'd, I'd be curious to see where your imagination is taking you in the what's next. You know, there's, there's an exercise that I talk about in the book and that I, I often do with groups and I've done it with groups of 15 and I've done it with a, in a hall with 1,500 people in Belgium where I ask people to close their eyes and imagine that they're traveling forward 10 years into the future and not into utopia, but into a future where everything that could possibly have been done was done. And then I invite them just to sit in silence for two minutes and to just go for a walk around it in their imagination. What does it feel like, sound like, smell like? And every time I do it, and then at the end, then we ask people to share any particular impressions they had. And the main ones every time are the bird song was so much louder, the air smelled so much cleaner, there were there were so many less cars, maybe no cars, there was a stronger sense of collective purpose, and there were food gardens everywhere. We have just, you know, up until six months ago, people would leave the theater after hearing me do that exercise with them and go, Yeah, right, like that's ever gonna happen as they walk back out into the traffic. And were, and actually what's happened, there were at least two months where you could walk out of your house and that was how it was. And I think that that there was something, although absolutely not in the conditions under which we would want people to have that taste of it. And I don't for a moment want to minimize how absolutely horrendous this has been. But there was something so precious about that. And I would really uh, hope that rather than just dashing back to getting back to normal, whatever that is, that we hold on to that and say, no, 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 we've had a taste of that now. That's irreplaceable. We have to build off that. That is the foundation of that. Once you've had a taste of it, why would we want to go back to something else? So what I see happening now is lots of places where municipalities, city governments are going, okay, we don't go back to how it was before. We bounce forward from here to something better. So we're going to take the cars out. We're going to widen the pavements. We're going to do all of this kind of stuff. But it needs to go way, way, way beyond that. You know, We need to be arguing and articulating for the things that the climate and ecological and social justice crisis demands of us as being a coherent, holistic story, which coming back to donor economics, it does so beautifully. It paints that picture of all that stuff tied up because you're telling the story within that framework. And I think we need to be looking at the challenge of COVID and particularly the way that it has shown us that that myth, that change happens only, it only happens very slowly. No, change only happens very incrementally. And you're very naive for believing that big leaps forward are possible. Uh -uh, We don't buy that anymore. That's clearly nonsense. Uh, and that there's no money. Well, there seems to be money for for doing lots of things, but not for doing these things. So we don't buy that stuff anymore. And so I feel like it's actually given us much stronger kind of a sense of, of how things can be and that they are so much more possible than they might have appeared before. Awesome. Rob S., what's next? What's next? Well, I don't know when this will be released exactly, but uh, at the very end of September, uh, we are launching the Donor Economics Action Lab, which is a a place for people to, the emerging community of people around the world who are interested in the ideas of donor economics and putting them into action to come together as a global community on this collaborative platform, share ideas and inspire each other about how they're putting these ideas into practice. And so the the donut model off is invitational. It offers a seed of an idea, like what if we thrive in this space where we're meeting all people's needs within a thriving ecological environment? And to that, I think that the invitation, the possibility there is is endless. In Amsterdam, they took the bold leap of publishing their new strategy, their new economic strategy centered around the donut. 
And from that moment, over 500 places, cities, towns, neighborhoods around the world expressed their interest that they want to do the same thing. It, out of nowhere, this explosion of interest and the number just keeps on growing. And that's before we've even launched this platform to operate you know, within business, within you know, communities and teachers and all these other things. And we're seeing that the inspiration can come from, from seeing someone like yourself doing something you never thought was possible, something irresistible that you want to do as well. And you see them doing it and you think, why not? And so I see this work sort of being in the next uh, year really taking off. I'm very excited to see, to see where that goes. And I might have the date wrong, but I think it's September 29th, right? Because right. I, I follow yeah. on, on Twitter. So, you know, right. I, I think this episode will be out after that, but it doesn't matter because this is evergreen and folks will be, those who aren't aware at that time, hopefully they'll listen to this and they'll be able to plug in because I guess there's no expiration on these programs and these initiatives. And um, I think it's, it's really, really important work. So I want to get to the, the final two sections of the show. The first one being off the dome, where I just add some very quick questions, very quick prompts, kind of first thing off the top of the head kind of thing. And one of them is just kind of generic, but then the other three, I try to frame them in keeping with the conversation, kind of a what if notion. Um, <laughs> so hopefully I was somewhat right. successful. So <laughs> the first one is not a what if though. The first one is just a general question. Whenever I'm talking to folks from different parts of the world, I often ask them, you know, different things about their their culture, their environment, whatever. And so this one's kind of a little cliche, but we all have like kind of stereotypes and norms about where we're from, right? So people think a lot of things about Americans, some of which is true, some of which isn't. <laughs> some I own up to, some I don't, right? So I'm curious, and I have family in the UK, so you can say whatever you want. And, and I take a lot of liberty because I have family in the UK. So I'm like, <laughs> I can say it to my cousins, I can say it to them. So what is the most British trait that you think you own up to? Of all the stereotypes, what would you say is the, the one British trait for each of you that you would happily own up to? Playing croquet. <laughs> Do you know what croquet is? Croquet is, is this like sport. the little hammer thing? It's like where you swing like a giant wooden hammer between your legs. You try and get, you hit the ball and try and get it between a hoop. Like a little Yeah, I don't know if that's thing, just right? a British thing. But yeah, sometimes they're round, sometimes they're kind of long and rectangular. I think it's quite stereotypically British. Yeah, you had a stick at the end. I love that game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to like that game as well. Oh, God. I like beer. <laughs> wait, wait, hang on. Let's be more specific. You, you like ale. You like flat, warm <laughs> ale. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I like listening to, there are particular radio comedy shows from the 1950s that I grew up listening to because my dad used to play them all the time. Tony Hancock and things like that, that actually are completely English, but I still really love listening to them. They're really funny. Okay. The, e either of those definitely lean into those. I would say if you like the beer and the ale and also fighting, then it would be super British. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And a good cream tea. I do like a good cream tea. We're, we're, we're in the Southwest of England. Yeah. We have a good cream tea. We're in Scones, a lot of cream. The order's, you know, very important. Very <laughs> so now this is going to get me into my what ifs, right? So what if social media shut down? What would that oh, look like to you? It would be, it would be just so brilliant. I'd love it. You know, it would be you know great. What? I've got this. Um, I had this idea. You know, when iPhones, you know, became really popular, and everyone's like looking down at their iPhone, walking past loads of other people, loads of opportunities to kind of talk to other people, but no, they're looking at this phone. I thought with this gimmick to come up with a, a U phone, which is just a brick that does nothing, and then so you have to put it down and talk to the person next to you. <laughs> so it's. Uh, I just feel a like idea. I do like that idea that you can all of a sudden start talking to people on the bus and they don't think you're weird. <laughs> there are things that I like about it. But I remember life before it, and I don't feel like my quality of life has particularly improved. I just feel like my attention span has got shorter. And uh, and as time has gone on, I've come to appreciate how precious and important a good attention span is. So I would happily sacrifice my social media accounts for my attention span. Awesome. My next one is, what if we had a three-day work week? <gasps> Fantastic. That's the dream, right? I think that's another part of the imagination, the sense that we have to work five days. I would see those extra two days being doing things with neighbors, doing things in your local community, picking up a, a skill. Rob is, is probably very modest and wouldn't raise this, but is an incredible artist and has in lockdown been honing his, his printmaking skills. And so the idea that you could pick up a new line of printmaking thing and yeah, I just think that would be the best. And when you have that extra kind of creativity and connection through maybe more sort of like connection to the community coming to your life, then I reckon your three days at work are just going to be far richer as a result as well. 
Yeah, I would agree with Rob, although the only thing I would say is the problem that I have is what happens if your work is the thing that you also really love doing? You know, like actually, I always think people say to me, well, if you inherited 10 million pounds, you didn't have to work, would you still do the stuff that you do? And I probably would because I really love doing it. And so actually, it's the thing for me is that actually the work I do with transition and this imagination work is also kind of an arts practice and I can't turn it off. So I would need to be very, very disciplined that I would have my three days and then I would have my two days for going out and making prints and stuff. As a society-wide thing, I think it's it's vital for giving people the space for the imagination to come back. And actually, we saw during lockdown this phenomenal thing where all of a sudden people had time and space and you saw all these people taking online art classes and all these mad videos they put online of their whole family doing dance routines and posing as kind of old masters paintings. And you just give that a little bit of space and then it just flourishes. Yeah, and baking bread. Yeah. I'm baking bread, yeah. Just to bring in like the economic angle, I really think the economy would change because those two extra days you could put more time into care. You could care for people like elderly relatives or people in your family and you can, so you're no longer having to pay for those services and you could create more kind of free kind of exchanges within your community and like do stuff together based on volunteering that it also takes stuff out of the market. And so I think the market would would get back in its box and actually just there'd be more sort of relational transactions you know, based on reciprocity and trust and care and love. And that's, I think all the, those sentiments are amazing. My last one, my last what if, um, and this is, comes from a place, obviously every academic system is different, but you know, in the U.S. there's, and I probably would hazard against in a lot of Western places, there's a big emphasis on like STEM and science and math and technology training and turning us all into coders and programmers. So what if gardening replaced STEM classes? I heard a beautiful interview recently with a guy who's a teacher out of school in New York. I can't remember where they teach food growing and they grow food inside the building and they grow food in the classrooms. And he said, we teach, uh, you know, it's a pretty tough neighborhood. You know, he said, we teach everything through food growing. We teach them biology. We teach them maths. We teach them everything through this. And we teach them actually, you can, we, we take them to the posh fancy restaurants and we show them how much this stuff is worth. Then they're kind of really interested. And he said, they do a lovely thing where when they, when they want to teach the, when the kids are struggling with their reading, they say, we're going to read to the plants. And uh, rather than read to me as a teacher, I want you to read to the plants. If you put food growing at the heart of, of education and kids grow up around food being grown and gardening, and it completely normalizes it. You know, I, I'm a really passionate believer that we need to get to a place where being an urban food grower, growing food on rooftop gardens, growing food in neighborhoods and cities is just the coolest occupation <laughs> imaginable. And I think we have to get there and it has to start in school. And people would benefit across the spectrum. I went to a school in Germany where they have a wildlife garden. They said, when we do maths, we send them out into the garden. When they're doing art, we send them into the garden. When they're doing creative writing, we send them into the garden. And one of the teacher I spoke to said, that was the reason I chose to teach in this school was because they had this garden. It, it should run through. It should be a fundamental of education. Rob S. Well, if we had to do gardening instead of STEM subjects, I think our, our cities would look a little differently. Uh, we'd have to have green spaces where, you know, we would bring back car parks from being grey, concrete, sort of blank canvases into wonderful, green, vibrant environments. And we would have our hands in the soil whilst talking with neighbours. And we, I think we'd be a lot happier. So, I, yeah, I would just I'd love to see, yeah, what the impact would be on our cities, you know, green roofs and, uh, and less asphalt and concrete. Awesome. I would just I would just add to that actually. I think there's something about, you know, that schools now a lot of schools need to have police in schools because kids come into school and stab each other and all this kind of thing. It's like, well, really, if kids are going into a building that looks like a prison and feels like a prison and operates like a prison, how people are going to react? If people came into a school that felt like a jungle, felt like a rainforest, felt like a garden, felt like the hanging gardens of Babylon, and you were eating food from that it were completely different. Like the, the impact on young people's mental health of being around plants and everything would just be transformative, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. I'm glad I got the what ifs in. So <laughs> when I, the final segment, the final segment of the show is called the drop where, you know, I give a drop. Drops can be anything. And I'm going to ask each of you to do the same. So I can go first or Rob S, Rob H, you can give your respective drop. So how do you want to do it? Well, you give us yours first so we can get the gist of... of okay, you know, awesome. You've done it before. We haven't done it before. So it'll help okay. if you went first. I'm super easy. Recently, I guess it's been a week now, we had the passing of an actor here, um, Chadwick Boseman, who very famously played um, Black Panther, but he played a number of other roles. And he's an alum of my school, Howard University, and he's meant a lot to all of us as an alum. He's one of the best spirits 
and legacies that that Howard has. Um, and we have quite a, a legacy to maintain. The school is called the Mecca for good reason. So despite of Chadwick's passing, my drop would be to engage with his work, um, with his life, check out his his films beyond Black Panther. He's been in 42, he's been in Marshall, you know, tons of, of really good movies and engage with his work outside of film as well. He's been a prolific speaker and ambassador not just for Howard, but for Blackness and one of those more viable futures. So my drop is to engage with Chadwick Boseman and rest in peace to a proud Howard Bison. So that's my drop. Wonderful. (laughs) Amazing. Rob? So my drop would be a poem. It's a poem called Radical Tenderness. And the poem really invites what an exploration of what that means. And it was written by it's a collaboration between Danny D'Amelia and Vanessa Andreotti of something called the Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures. And it's a really stunning, quite a long poem that really inspired me. I read it every single day as almost like a mantra whilst I was doing my research into imagination. And as much as imagination is about the birth of new things, I think it's we also have to be able to let go and recognize what we're letting go of. And I think radical tenderness invites that beautifully. I think also re- very relevant for our current times. So I can uh, share the link of, of that with you and the work of gesturing towards decolonial futures. I think my drop would be a book that I've been reading during lockdown that I really love, which is Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, which is really, really fascinating kind of a take on... Ah, there we go. You see, look, fabulous. Isn't it great? I'm so loving it. And it's been... I don't know what to say about it. I, I've, it's one of the most underlined books I've been reading recently. I find her her perspective really refreshing, really, really insightful. She sent me off to read, she made me go off and read Octavia's novels, which I've been really enjoying, Octavia Butler's novels. And I felt like she's a kindred spirit on a slightly sort of parallel path and that she's come through permaculture. And I've seen talks that she does where she's just so insightful i love that when she was talking about you know the degree to which people are finding the black lives matter revolution upsetting or disturbing is to do with the degree to which it has been hidden from you in your life up to this point and that's a really beautiful way of putting it i just think she's awesome and some of her quotes about imagination and about the degree to which imagination is shaped by colonization and and slavery and so on is just brilliant so hat tip to her yeah, that's amazing drops. I could go on and on, on on both of them, but in interest of time, your schedules and our listeners, I will not do that. Um, what I will do, though, is thank both of you, Rob Shorter, Rob Hopkins, for being on the deep dive. You've been great guests, great spirits. I love your collective work, and I'm sure this won't be the last time that we get a chance to imagine together. So thank you for being on the deep dive. And thank you, thank for, you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure having the two Robs, Rob Hopkins and Rob Shorter, join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, Wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.